Buenos días. <laughs> Bienvenido a nuestra iglesia. Me llamo Jeremías. Good morning. Welcome to our church. My name is Jeremy. It's a pleasure to have you this Memorial Day weekend. We're delighted that you're here. And as you can see, we have a very diverse congregation with multiple languages represented and multiple gifts represented as well. Today we're going to be talking in our sermon about two particular gifts, the gifts of tongues and the gift of prophecy. And so basically what I'm going to do, since they're nice and controversial, we're going to stir the waters a little bit this morning and talk about tongues and prophecy and women being silent in church and send you home with plenty of things to talk about over your picnic lunch. Um, What I'm going to do in a simple way, hopefully, is this. I'm going to say tongues. What are they? Prophecy, what is it? And then all together, in the end, what's the point? Tongues, what is it? Prophecy, what is it? And then finally, what's the point? So, if you have your Bibles in, I invite you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. We are moving through this beautiful Pauline epistle, or this letter of Paul, to this crazy church in Corinth. And once again, they show themselves to be a unique, unusual, and flavorful congregation. So in the 14th chapter, in all forms of Bibles, whether it's electronic, digital, print, written, whatever, or on page 1220 in your blue pew Bible, or wherever you find it on your iPad or iPhone. 1 Corinthians 14, I'm going to read verses 1 through 12, and then we will cover the rest as we go. 1 Corinthians 14, verses 1 through 12. It says this, this is what you heard earlier. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in A tongue speaks not to men, but to God, for no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now, I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. For the one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets, so that the church may be built up. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? If even lifeless instruments such as the flute or the harp do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what's played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So too with yourselves, if your tongue, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages, as you heard this morning, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, then I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. So too with yourselves, since you are eager for the manifestation manifestations of the spirit here's the point strive to excel in building up the church you've probably heard of the movie the field of dreams and by now it's sort of a cliche to say if you will build it they will come 
But what I'd like to do this morning is sort of flip that statement on its head because what that movie refers to is the physical building and the spiritual results. But instead, what I'd like to say to you this morning is if you will spiritually build up your brothers and sisters in Christ, then you will produce fruit or you will get real results. In other words, if you build into the church, God will bless it. If you will build into your brothers and sisters in Christ, God will bless your efforts. God gives many different gifts to the body of Christ, and these are just two of them. But let's address them this morning. First of all, tongues, what is it? Let me give you a little bit of context before I get into the controversy. And the context is this. Um, Basically what happens is in John chapter 14, Jesus is preparing to leave his disciples. And he says, when I go away, the Holy Spirit or their comforter will come. So he makes this promise. And then, as was predicted through the scriptures, Jesus is Uh, crucified, he is buried, he is raised from the dead, and he ascends on high to heaven. After that, in Acts chapter 2, this is what happens. Acts chapter 2, you'll see it on the screen, verses 1 through 12. Jesus is gone now, and this is what happens. It says, when the day of Pentecost arrived at the Jewish feast, they were all together in one place. And suddenly, there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, this multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it then that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes, Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia... Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, uh, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans, Arabians, we hear them telling in their own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what in the world does this mean? So in other words, if you came here this morning and our readers started reading to you and all of you understood every single one of them in your native language, you would, in this sense, have the gift of tongues. You would have the instant ability to understand what is being said, what is being translated from one language to another. That in Acts chapter 2 is how this gift functioned. It communicated the gospel, God's truth, to a broadly diverse group of people where there was no translation possible. That is the gift of tongues in Acts chapter 2. Now, if we stop there, which is, I think, in my opinion, where the, um, what we will call the cessationist or the very conservative uh, of, of some walks of the Christian uh, faith will land, they will be very content Because we will stop there and we will say that is tongues and there is no other potential for any other form. That's where it ends. 
other languages. And then they would say, well, if it's not the gift of instant translation, then it's not tongues. And since this was a unique time in history where that was happening and that was necessary, that gift was used then, but it's no longer used today. But what happens is you read further throughout the New Testament and you run into this chapter in 1 Corinthians 14 and it really challenges that quite a bit. And so what ends up happening is there are various views within the Christian faith on the gift of tongues. Some people will say it is Acts 2 only. It stopped at this point in time. It is only other languages. Bang. Tongues. Others will say, well... It seems like there's a possibility for a little bit more under a broader rubric, which includes the use of uh, other languages, but may include some spiritual prayers as well. But we want to examine those and see what they are. And others will go all the way to the other extreme and just say, whatever it is, if somebody says it's from God, we take their word for it and go with it. Because we can just whatever, you know. Now, of course, there's a lot of different varieties all in between here, and everybody has their own take, and it's not exactly precise. I'm just giving you three broad categories to sort of help you wrap your mind around this debate. And you'll find a theme and variation on each one from every different person. But here, in general, as a rule of thumb, are three different views that you can use to compare and contrast the interpretations of this gift as it's seen throughout Scripture. So then, what happens? Well, you come now to 1 Corinthians chapter 14, and thinking about these different interpretations, you look at verse 2, and verse 2 says this. It says, For one who speaks in a tongue speaks, oh, listen here, not to men, but to God. For no one understands him, and he utters mysteries, in the spirit. Now that's a bit challenging to the only foreign languages interpretation. Because when you look at this, it says no one understands. That includes the speaker himself. If you look at verse um, 13 and in the same chapter, it says, Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. This assumes that the person who receives the gift of tongues doesn't necessarily have the ability to explain what they're saying or to interpret it. And so when they have this gift, they should not only pray for the gift of tongues, they should also pray for the gift of interpretation. Two different gifts. And what I'm saying to you here is, you'll hear me couching this language, and I want you to hear it very carefully. It seems or it implies, in other words, what I'm doing is I'm not, hopefully you'll recognize, making a dogmatic assertion, putting a stake in the ground. But what I'm saying to you is, as I read this, as I've studied it, as I've read, as I've listened to other commentators, this is where it seems to be going. It's not quite the same as... For example, the Trinity, which Scripture goes bang and puts a stake in the ground. It's not the same as the deity or full humanity of Christ, in which Scripture goes bang and puts a stake in the ground. It's not the same as the resurrection, in which Scripture goes bang and puts a stake in the ground. If you reject any of those three doctrines, you are outside of the Christian faith. 
This one allows for a little bit of latitude based on your interpretation. So as I do this, please don't throw me under the bus. I am trying to make it clear as to why I think the Bible says what it says, but not um, burn you at the stake in the process as well. So here we are in 1 Corinthians 14. And what I see is that in verse 2, in verse 13, and then following in verse 28, the idea is that someone who gets this gift may be speaking to God. Look at verse 28. It says, If there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in the church and speak to himself and to God. So in other words, what, what I see in this passage is this gift, first of all, may not be human-to-human correspondence, like you get in Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, it's people talking to people and the Spirit interpreting. In this spot, you have people speaking directly to God, and there may or may not be an interpreter, and they may or may not understand what is being said. So this, for me, slightly opens the door beyond the cessationist thing that says now there's potential for this to be more than just foreign languages, but this could, in fact, be a spiritual unknown language that no one understands without the option of the Holy Spirit coming in and interpreting it for us. So where I land, as you're beginning to see, is in this middle ground, which is called by theologians, open but cautious. It is not, and everything goes, it is not everything stops, but it is, let us examine it carefully in light of Scripture. And I'll show you how to do that as we walk through this text today. 1 Corinthians 14 very clearly walks us through that process and defines what is inbounds and what is out. So then, there's a command there's, there's two scriptures which I just gave to you, and there is a command. Acts 2 and 1 Corinthians 14. Now, the command is this. At the end of the chapter, there's a summary statement which kind of summarizes everything he's talking about in the whole chapter. And he says this in verses 39 and 40. He says, So then, my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy, and do not forbid the speaking in tongues. But all things, that is, whether it's prophecy or tongues or whatever, should be done decently in order. Now, this is pretty tough on the complete cessationist because it says, don't forbid speaking in tongues, which opens the door a little bit. And then you begin to ask the question, you look at TV and all the, you know, televangelists and weird stuff that's going on, and you say, well, how in the world do we do that in a biblical and theological and appropriate worshipful way? Especially in our context, because we're not a little small house church meeting in Corinth. We're a great big group of people. Is this even possible? How can we do this? Well... The way I would recommend is like this. You've heard me say a few times, check the door. This is audience participation time now. Are you ready? I think everyone from first grade up, at least maybe even kindergarten or four years old can get this, all right? So this is where you chime in. This is where you talk, okay? We're going to practice 
discerning the gift of tongues, okay? And this is the first step. Are you ready? I will say one phrase, and then you say the subsequent phrase back to me. And I think you'll get it, okay? Everybody ready? Here we go. Knock, knock. Right on. You're ready, okay? This is the first step. This is the way you move forward when you receive this um, attempt at a gift, okay? So, for example, if someone comes to your house, okay? Listen to these different scenarios. It's the middle of the night. You're sound asleep. Bang, 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 bang. There's a rap on the door. Let me in. Let me in. I'll huff and I'll puff and I'll blow your house down. (laughs) What do you do? Well, you grab the baseball bat and the telephone and you put one behind your back and your thumb on the other and you go to the door, right? Who is it? (laughs) Knock, knock. Who's there? That's a big bad wolf. Okay, come on in. I got something for you, (laughs) right? You keep the door slammed shut because you know this is an intruder and an invader. They are a wolf. They are outside the Christian faith. They are not welcome in your home. Bolt, lock, key, call the authorities, right? Okay, next scenario. It's the middle of the day. There's a knock, knock, knock on the door. You're not expecting anybody. Who is this? You go to the door, but do you throw it open right away? Probably not. You look out the window a little bit. You check and see. You know, if it says like college painters and you see a nervous kid sitting there with his sheet getting ready to read, you know, would you like to buy a thing for me? You know, it's probably okay. But if you see a dark van out there and it's a little bit suspicious and you don't recognize it, you have some more questions. You may not open the door. You may keep it bolted. You know, if all of a sudden it's somebody you recognize, you're going to open it up and let them in. Scenario number three. You've planned that your life group is coming over on Sunday evening at 6 p.m. You've got the candles going. The, the meal is cooked. All of a sudden, this van pulls up to your door and people start coming out and they're holding casseroles and Bibles and they're coming in. What do you think? <laughs> it's probably safe, right? You throw open the door and you say, come on in. You're welcome here. I clearly recognize that you're a brother and sister in Christ. We plan this ahead of time. We're glad you're here. Welcome. So too with the gift of tongues. When there is a claim that someone has this gift, what you're going to do is walk it through this process to see if it meets certain criteria. Is it expected? Is it unexpected? What's going on here? 1 Corinthians chapter 14 will show us how to do that. Verse 29 says this. It says, weigh what is said. One of the commands in this chapter, very specifically, is to weigh what is said. Why? Because God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. So therefore, weigh what is said. Well, how do we do that then? Well, chapter, or verse 27 and verse 28 gives us some very specific criteria. When there is a knock at the door and someone says, hey, I've got the gift of tongues, here's what you walk them through to see, do we slam the door, do we crack the door, or do we open it wide open? Verse 27, it says this, If anyone speaks in a tongue, here's the first criteria, let there be only two 
or at most three at one time. And each in turn and let someone interpret. Now, if, verse 28, if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. So in other words, here's three very clear criteria for this gift of tongues. Number one, no more than two or three people at a time. And number two, it has to be sequentially. They're not all going at the same time, but instead there's two or three lined up. There's one and then the other. It's done decently and in order. And number three, there must be an interpretation. It's not just blah, 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 yada, 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 but there has to be a specific interpretation given. So then, what about mass services where they want everybody to speak in tongues? At the same time, with no interpretation given. Is that biblical? Well, make the call. What does 1 Corinthians chapter 14 say? What are the criteria spelled out in verses 27 through 28? Now, come on, hold on a minute, Pastor. Aren't you being a bit judgmental? Let me give you another analogy. Baseball. Are you with me here, Brother Chuck? Okay. Listen up, baseball fans. Okay, if the pitch is over the plate and in the strike zone, what is it? Strike, right? If it's way outside and the catcher can't even catch it, what is it? You know, foul, right? Or not a foul, a ball. <laughs> Come on. Shows you how much baseball I watch. Okay. It's way outside. And if it's on the edge, why then you can argue about it and you can debate it and you can watch the replay and whatever. But some things are clearly straight down the middle and some things are way, way outside. Now, here's the irony that I find. People who have never played a single day of professional baseball in their entire lives are like, strike, come on, Ralph, what's wrong with you? I mean, they are all over that umpire. They clearly can make the call. But when it comes to an area of Christian discernment, what happens? Sometimes those people who may have been a Christian for 10, 15, 20, 30 years are still like, I don't know. I don't want to make the call. I don't want to be judgmental. And I'm sitting there saying to myself, what in the world? You're supposed to be an old pro with tons of experience in one. You have no experience in the other. But the one you're experienced and educated and grown up in, you're willing to say nothing. And the one you know nothing about, you're willing to scream at the top of your lungs. What's going on there? Make the call, man. You've got some very clear criteria. Is it over the plate or not? Is it outside or not? It's very, very clear. Now, some people say, well... Come on, now, isn't that, that's being judgmental, and Jesus says not to judge. That's in Matthew chapter what? Seven. But guess, that's like in chapter seven, verse one. Guess what's in like verse six? Don't throw your pearls before swine. Well, how do you know the difference between a swine and a non-swine? You have to make a judgment, don't you? Should I cast my pearls out there, or should I hold them to myself? What do I do? You see, in that chapter in Matthew, Jesus is not saying, use no moral discernment whatsoever. Would you want your children to grow up like that? No, don't judge, kids. You know, I know there's drugs and parties and sex and blah, 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 but you know, you don't want 
to judge. Come on. It's pretty clear. We are to exercise moral discernment. The Bible makes that very clear. We're not to assume the authority of God and say we have the power and right to condemn somebody else to hell. Like I can see into your heart and say, I know you. You're on your way to hell. That's not my place to say. I don't sit on the judgment seat of Christ. I don't sit on the throne of God. But I can clearly discern certain things that the Bible has spelled out. So in other words, there's a difference between being judgmental and exercising discernment. And the Bible, while it calls us not to be judgmental, at the same time, it calls us to exercise discernment. And the the verse in which people quote and throw around so frequently about judge not is the most misquoted and out-of-context used verse probably in the entire Bible. Here we have Jesus in the same chapter saying, don't cast your pearls before swine. In fact, in John chapter um, 7, verse 24, Jesus specifically says, make a right judgment. So there is a time for us to exercise judgment. Moral discernment is entirely appropriate for Christians, especially those who are mature. So in this chapter, I'm not asking you to be judgmental. I'm not asking you to be a hypocrite. I'm just asking you to exercise a little discernment. And the Bible clearly spells out some very clearly defined criteria that tell you whether it's strike or a ball. It's very, very clear. So if that doesn't help, let me give you a few more. And here are these criteria from Michael Green. When someone comes to you with a prophecy or a word or a tongue and they're saying this is from the lord here's how you can begin to examine it and say does this fit within the parameters of orthodoxy number one the first question is does it glorify god does it glorify god if it doesn't glorify god clearly it's outside of the box number two does it accord with scripture you know the spirit works through his word does it fit that Number three, does it build up the church? You'll see later that the theme of this whole passage is to build up the body of Christ. Does it build up the church? Is it spoken in love? And, and importantly, number five, does the speaker submit him or herself to the judgment and consensus of others in, in spiritual humility? If the elders approach this person and say, hey, we'd like to hear what you have to say, You say you have a word from the Lord. Let us examine it according to these criteria. And that person's like, you don't have no authority over me. I do whatever I want because I'm my own person. You know immediately there's a heart issue going on there. They are refusing to submit to the authority that God has placed in their life. That's a problem. This one's probably outside the box. Next is the speaker in control of themselves. You'll see throughout this chapter there's no such thing as ecstatic experiences. In fact, that's what the Apostle Paul was writing in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 to contradict. In the pagan worship services, they are going crazy, worshiping these idols. And Paul says, no, 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 nothing like that. These, anyone who comes to your service is going to think you're crazy if they see that. That is not what this is. No, no ecstatic dances or whatever. That, that's outside. And finally, is there a reasonable amount of instruction or does the message seem excessive in detail? The world is going to end on September 4th. 
Y2K or whatever. You know, that's too much. No one knows the time or hour. Keep it to yourself. Don't try to guess. Let the Lord take care of that. So here's some criteria that you can use. And basically, when you walk through these, then you know, is the door cracked? Is it slammed shut? Or is it wide, wide open? Look, the role of the Holy Spirit is always, always, always to attract attention to Jesus. That is what the Spirit does. So if anything distracts from Christ, then it's not of the Spirit. If it draws attention to the one doing it, then it is not of the Spirit. The role of the Holy Spirit is to draw attention to Jesus Christ. So, I challenge you, make the call. Make the call. Here are some examples. For example, uh, you can Google or Internet these, but just be careful when you do. Barking like dogs. Is that of the Spirit? Probably not. Rolling down the aisles. Is that of the Spirit? Probably not. Handling snakes? Be careful. You might get bit. Probably not. Those are not over the plate. But if someone comes, perhaps in your small group, in your life group, and they speak an unknown language, and everybody's like, whoa, this was an unexpected visitor. We had no idea what's going on here. Well then, give us an interpretation. Okay, if not you, then someone else in the gift should, at, in that moment, should be gifted with the gift of interpretation. And they should be able to explain to you what that word was. And then they walk you through that word and you say, wow, that fits completely with what the Bible has to say. That brings glory to God. That testifies of Jesus Christ. I think this person might be onto something. Let's open the door a little bit. And here we are. It's an unexpected guest, but they check out. They're okay. And so this is the way you walk through. And boy, you walk through that and you can see some opportunities for the Spirit to work then. Some of the people that are on this side over here that say anything goes, door open all the time, would say that I myself, as I explain this to you with certain criteria, am limiting the Spirit or that I don't believe in the Holy Spirit. Let me be very clear to you, I'm a Trinitarian Christian and I fully affirm the Holy Spirit. In fact, this is the one whom I worship. This is the one who convicts me of sin. This is the one who regenerates me, makes me able to believe. This is the one who indwells me. This is the one who guides me. This is the one who convicts me. This is the one who seals me for the day of redemption. I believe in the Holy Spirit. (laughs) Okay? Let us be very clear. I believe in the Holy Spirit. And in fact, I believe in His work. And do you know what His work is? It's right here. I believe in the work of the Holy Spirit. I have it right in front of me. 2 Timothy 3.16 says that this is the anumatos. It is breathed by the Spirit himself. This is his work. And in his work, he defines himself like this. So how is it then that I cannot believe in the Holy Spirit if I am saying, what he said to me, I believe. And what he said in 1 Corinthians 14 is this is how I work. He spells it out. I work like this. I always bring attention to Jesus. I always bring glory to God. I do things consistent with what I have already said. 
And therefore, if you want to know if it's of me, you check it out like this. Because I am not a God of disorder, but of order. And therefore, I expect you to exercise this gift in this way. Period. 1 Corinthians chapter 14. There it is. Do I believe in the Holy Spirit? Yes. Do I limit the Holy Spirit? No. He can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants. But he himself, by his word, in his work, says, this is the way I do it. Now, that's not so strange. If I came to you and said, this is the way I operate, you would expect me to operate that way. Because I know about myself. Now, sometimes I may be inconsistent because I'm human, but the Spirit never is. He's completely consistent. And that's why you examine everything, as it says, examine, to see if it's consistent. Because if it's not consistent, it's not of the Spirit. So walk down that path to see... Is this legitimate or not? Check the door. Look, if someone raps on your door and you got your little kids sleeping at night, you're not going to be like, come on in, you know, whoever, whatever. No way. You're going to check the door. You're going to examine it. You're going to walk them through the process and say, does this fit or does it not? And you're not being judgmental. You're just being wise and exercising discernment. Now, in our culture today, if someone comes to your door, Uh, you're going to be a little bit more suspicious. Because way back when, you know, people may have frequently visited certain homes and they may bring a pie and they may plan to stay the day. But today, if you were to try something like that unannounced, people would think you were probably quite weird. Usually you want to call in advance and make sure people are home because they're busy and involved in a hundred different things. And if you show up at their door with a pie and it's unexpected... They're going to be like, what is going on? Is this a pyramid scheme you're trying to sell me or what? I don't get it. Okay, so sometimes over time things change. So if we, you know, break with the cultural norms, it's going to seem a bit odd and you need to check that out. So too with the gift of tongues and the Holy Spirit. You know, I think today it would be an unexpected guest. He would still be welcome. But it may be a little bit weird. And so you're going to have to examine it. That, by the way, is why we have an order of worship. Because in that order of worship, it tells you what we expect. And if anything is outside of this order of worship, why then, that's an unexpected guest. And we would have to check it out. If I start speaking in tongues, all of a sudden, you guys are going to start looking at me pretty weird. And then one of our elders or someone else is going to have to come up here and interpret. And if they interpret perfectly and you guys are like, wow, this is amazing, and it fits with Scripture, then we might say, okay, then, that has a place. But if it is not working in that way, then we say, no, we shut the door. That's the way this gift operates. 1 Corinthians chapter 14. So that's my spot on tongues. I would say, what is it? Well, in Acts chapter 2, we know that it's, uh, it can be other languages. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14, I would say, myself, my interpretation is that it could be an unknown spiritual language, okay? And yet, it must be consistent with Scripture, so check it out. Now, we spent a lot of time on that because that's controversial. Let's move on to the next gift, which is prophecy. Prophecy. What is it? Well, as um, Ted Knapp uh, spoke earlier, you know, most of the time in our society, we see this gift as a futuristic thing. Apocalypse now. 
No, here comes the great big movie with the crashing waves and the helicopters flying over the top and the people running from, you know, whatever and just making it in time. You know, here comes the end of the world. Well, in Scripture, indeed, there is a futuristic prophecy, but there's also a current word as well. So let me give you an example of each, and then we'll apply the same criteria in a very brief way to prophecy that you apply to tongues. So, for example, uh, prophecy could be foretelling the future. Micah 5, verse 2, says this. says, But you, O Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel. Now listen to this. Whose coming forth is from old, from ancient of days. In other words, to this little tiny town, the smallest in the entire nation is to come the greatest ruler of all. To a specific place, the prophet, hundreds of years before the birth of Christ, says this is where Jesus will be born. And then, Jesus is born there. That's a specific prophecy that is historically verifiable that happened in the past that was fulfilled. And we can look to it and say, wow, that's cool. God does that. You can look at a lot of other examples that are just like that. For example, in Isaiah, he talks about, or Hezekiah talks about, uh, or Isaiah tells Hezekiah that this guy by the name of Cyrus is going to come along, this Assyrian ruler. Now, there's no Assyrian kingdom at the time, and that's a bit strange, but sure enough, historical records demonstrate that Cyrus fulfills the prophecy. So there's a number of examples all throughout Scripture where you can see God specifically saying certain things and then fulfilling it. But there's also examples like in Acts chapter 2 that deal with the current or the present time as well. So Acts chapter 2 verse 22, immediately following the whole tongues incident, there is a very clear gospel proclamation. See, the use of the gift of tongues doesn't come without the gospel. And immediately following it, this is what happens. Peter says this in verse 22. He says, Men of Israel, hear these words of Jesus of Nazareth. Okay, who are we drawing attention to? A man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. You saw this. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Now God raised him up, loosing the pains of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Now, he quotes Psalm 16, another ancient prophecy, where in verse 27, the psalmist says, uh, You will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let the Holy One see corruption. Then, Peter says, Look, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now then, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter, What do we do? And he said, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, how does that strike you? Is that consistent with Scripture? Does that bring glory to God? Does that draw attention to Jesus? Absolutely. 
That's a prophecy that the Apostle Peter is giving right then and there to the people there. He's like, look, David said this. It was fulfilled. Christ did it. God is at work. Repent and be baptized. Bang. Prophecy. That is a strike. That is straight across the plate. Clear as can be. There's no interpretation needed for that whatsoever. If you don't get that, you're not listening or paying attention. This is it. And that's why the Apostle Paul in this chapter is going to say, hey, prophecy is so much better. It's way better than the gift of tongues because it's so much more clear. The middleman is removed and we go straight to the heart. And everybody is built up. Thus, desire all the more to prophesy. This is the gift that you should really go after. Especially, verse 1 says, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, 1. Pursue love, earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. Why? Because this one really builds up the church. Compared to all the others, this one really does it. Now, if we haven't landed in uh, controversial enough terrain, let us proceed to verse 29, where we will continue along that path, where it says, Women, verse 34, should keep silent. And all the men said, Oh, just kidding. (laughs) This happened, oh... (laughs) This happened. It, verse 34, it says, The women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there's anything they learn to desire, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for women to speak in church. Woo! <laughs> Ready? Here we go. What's happening is this. One of the things we always just step off the cliff on is when we take a verse like that, if that's all I read today, man, could I have fun with it. I mean, if I just left the rest of 1 Corinthians chapter 14 out and went with those verses, I could make up all kinds of crazy stuff. But the reality is, where in a literary context does that command occur? Look at verse 29. It says, let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. In other words, what's happening in this context is this. Look, I'm not playing the culture card and saying this doesn't apply to today. I'm saying it actually does. But let me show you how. Okay? What happens is this. In this context, in a small group setting, husband gets up and says, got a word from the Lord. I was praying today in my devotion, studying the book of Isaiah, and this is what he says. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Behold, he was born in Bethlehem, crucified, risen, and coming again. And the wife says, come on, guys. You going to listen to that? That dude can't even pick up his socks. He doesn't know how to make the bed. He burns the toast He puts the toilet paper on the wrong way and he squeezes the toothpaste from the middle of the tube. Now, let me tell you, it doesn't take much to figure out that is no man of God. So I'm not sure what he's saying, but you definitely don't want to listen to this guy. Well, how's Mr. Man going to feel? What? 
Come on, lady. <laughs> what is going on here? You just totally pulled the rug out from under me. You completely undercut me. You disrespected me, in, not only in person, but in public. Now, we might have some things we need to discuss when we get home, but this is not the appropriate context to do so. That's what's going on in the book of Corinth. These women who are coming to the worship service, not all, but some, these wives, you know, they're cutting their hair short, just like the pagans. They're taking their head coverings off, saying, there's no authority in my life. I don't care what my man says. I don't have to listen to you. And then they're coming into church, and the guy tries to speak up, and they shoot him down. And it's an embarrassment and a mockery. And the apostle specifically applies to the law. Why? Because the first five books of the Old Testament are Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, right? So on. So, in other words, he's doing the same thing he's done throughout this entire book. And he's appealing to creative order. In other words, just like the Trinity section, just like the... Uh, husband and wife, male, female headship, the Apostle Paul is walking us down this path and saying, you need to honor the leadership that God has placed in your life. And in the context of examining the word given, you are not to undercut your husband. If you have questions about what he said, rather than question him in public, go home and talk about it amongst yourselves. This is how male and female, husband and wife, should operate. Out of respect to one another. And I would say likewise, you know, if your wife says the color of the carpet was aubergine, don't say, no, it's pink. You just go like, all right, aubergine, whatever, that's a cool word. You know, I can live with that, right? You don't undercut the other one in public. And that's what the Apostle Paul is saying right here. So for these women in this Corinthian context... He's reminding them of the spiritual headship based on the Trinity, which was original to creative order from the very beginning that carries through even to today. You respect that order and you function in that way. And when it comes to church, if your husband is giving a word from the Lord, let the other men examine it and see if it lines up with Scripture. And then you can talk to him all you want when you get home. But don't undercut him in front of his friends. It's just inappropriate. So does this apply to today? Yes, absolutely. You know, if you have a guest speaker, let's just say a guest speaker, <laughs> come up here and his wife's sitting on the front row and he starts talking, all of a sudden she raises her hand and totally undercuts him. You know, Pastor Dave and I are going to be looking at ourselves like, what do we do here? <laughs> you know, we got to figure something out because these people are not in sync and they may have an issue and they may need to talk about it, but Sunday morning's probably not the spot to do it. What's going on? That's what's happening in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. So, husband and wife function in accordance with the Trinitarian model that's been given all throughout this book. Women, when you come to this spot, you be respectful of your husband. Yes, if a word is given, it should be examined. But you're not the one to undercut him. Okay? Respect your husbands. So, what's the point? Verse 26, wrapping it all up then. The point is this. It says, what then, brothers? What then? You know, what do we do? Well, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, an interpretation, whatever. Let all things be done for building up. What should we do? What's the goal? Verse 12, strive to excel in building one another up. 
The point is to build one another up. You know, there's a right way to go about things and there's a wrong way to go about things. The, the wrong way is to be unorganized, ununified, and disorderly. When you do that, you make a big mess in any building project. Look, our kids, we've grown up with, um, we have, first of all, mega blocks. And then we moved into the land of magnetiles. And then we moved into the land of pattern blocks. And I don't know what it was for you, whether it was Legos or Lincoln Logs or whatever, but clearly when you build something, the, the bigger the structure, the more people you're going to need, the more organized the process is going to have to be. So in order to do it successfully, you have to come together, you have to agree, and you move forward. If not, what happens? You're fighting over the blocks. You're fighting over the order, and it doesn't work. But when it does work, how wonderful is that? Look at this picture. This is how it works when things go well. First of all, you carefully select your block. You know exactly where you want to put it, and then you ease it in very carefully. Slide number two. And then you slowly remove your hand, and all of a sudden, it works. And you're like, woohoo! It worked! Amazing! When we walk ourselves through this building process, it works, and it's such a beautiful thing, and then we can stand next to our tower and be so proud of what we built because we all came together, we examined it, we worked the process, and it works. And what a good day is that. Amen? The goal, the goal in all of this, in the exercise of the spiritual gifts, verse 12, is to build up the church. This is why we do it. When we come together on Sunday morning, you should feel better when you left than when you started. In other words, you come into church and the reason you're doing so is to build one another up. Think of it this way. One last analogy and we're done. It's like a fort. And I don't know how you think of forts or whatever, but when I think of a fort, I think of a location where the soldiers are based at. And from this location, they get their food, their supplies, their medicine, their strategy, and everything else. And then they go out. And then they fight. And then they get tired. And they get hurt. And they get wounded. And then they come back to the fort. And they get restored. They get medical help. They get encouragement. They get new strategies. They get new equipment. They get new supplies. And they get ready to go out again. So too, the worship service on Sunday morning. The purpose of coming together is to build one another up. We're going out there into spiritual warfare. We're getting ready to fight. We are going to be attacked. We are going to see the fiery darts of the wicked one coming from every which way. We don't know who's going to get wounded. We might have to carry our brother limping back to the congregation. Or someone might have to carry you. But either way, you go out and you fight and you get ready to give your life. And then at the end of the week, you come back, you gather together, you invest you build up and you get ready to go out again. That's the point of church, to build one another up. So as you look at this chapter and you look at these gifts, you want to get focused all in on the controversy and this or that and where do you stand and what could happen. The point is really none of that. The point is, are you building one another up? And that's why the Apostle Paul lays down these specific parameters 
Because he says, man, if you're just here for your own spiritual ecstatic experience, worshiping to the beat of your own drum, you've totally missed the point. You should be there, not for yourself, but to build up your brother and sister in Christ. One little, one little point. Okay, so let's say, for example, on Sunday morning, we come to the worship style section, and everybody likes their own different music. And we decide that what we're going to do is every Sunday we're going to give out a thousand iPods, right? And we've got a mix created specifically for you. This is your worship mix so that when you come to our church, you're going to love it. And our, our keyboards and our drums and everybody, they're going to just sit up here and play. And what you're going to hear is what you want to hear. And you can sing or worship however you want. That would be a thousand different individual experiences. But what do we actually do? We say we're going to sing one song. We're all going to sing it together. And we're going to build up the body of Christ. And you may not like that song, but the guy next to you might. And so you need to sing it. Why? Not for you, but for him. Because the reason you come to church on Sunday morning is not for your own individualistic worship experience but it's to build up the body of Christ. This is our fort. This is where we come. We exercise our gifts. We build up the team, and then we go out and fight the fight. That's the point of the spiritual gifts. So I know I took a little extra of your time today. Thank you for humoring me with that. I hope that you'll enjoy your picnics this week. Come back after, after this week. And be ready to build one another up. As we get ready, we're working down, we're concluding this series. And we want to see that the point, you know, the whole point is the unity and strength and body of Christ. And that is what this text calls us to do. So God bless you. Thank you so much for coming today. Let me pray. And we will sing a song all together. And then we'll go home. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for your gifts, which are many and diverse. Thank you for your church. Thank you for your word, which is true. Lord, help us to uh, follow the work of your spirit and come back every week tired and hungry and spent, but ready to build one another up. And Lord, when we do that, we'll be so proud and so excited to see you bless our work. Because Lord, it's not, it's not if we build the work, but it's if we build into our brothers and sisters and then you bless it. And if we do... Lord, they'll come. We're so thankful for that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.